Hey folks, it's Josh Kurievsky, and this is The Modern Agile Show, episode 44. And I am here with my friend, Jeff Morgan, a.k.a. Cheesy. Uh, hey. he, he is uh, an extremely accomplished and experienced Agilist DevOps person. He's been doing this type of Agile DevOps work for a long time now. Uh, he goes back to the early 2000s when he started coaching. He is the co-founder of Industrial Logic Canada, which is very exciting. And he has offered books, uh, including a book on cucumber and cheese, I think it's called. That's right. That's right. Very good. So we're going to have an interesting conversation. Thanks for joining, Jeff. Well, thank you for having me, Josh. I'm happy to be here. And I'll now switch to calling you cheesy, which I normally do. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So uh, I know, so why don't we get started with something super exciting, which is you have a story that I really wanted to uh, hear about, which is about a very conservative bank in Canada, a very large bank, and what you've managed to help them do. Okay. Sure. Uh, so... Well, the bank is RBC. They're the second largest bank in Canada. A huge, huge organization. Uh, what you might call a, a traditional bank in that their their software development practices maybe are what what <laughs> let, let's say they're not modern. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. And yet they had a great leader in one area of the bank who who had this idea that he wanted to try to drive more toward. Uh, a hypothesis-driven product design. In other words, he wanted to drive toward, uh, instead of a, an approach where, instead of assuming we know what our customers want, assume, you know, assuming that we don't know what, what they want, but that we can formulate hypotheses around that and start to try to run experiments with the users to try to learn from the users along the way. Clearly, uh, that, that's, that's uh, right in line with what I love to do. But there were a lot of technical challenges that, uh, that, that existed there. Number one, uh, being a traditional organization, even though they had some agile here or there, it was a very heavyweight scrum, a large, Q, you know, a large QA process, so large regression processes. And what, uh, to, in order to try those experimentations, I knew we had to get very close, if not all the way, to continuous deployment. And so, uh, so uh, here we are a few months later. And we are deploying software every day, every day to production. Wow. And, uh, so, and so that's a huge change from what, what was the normal cadence of releases before that? I, I think you would find that it would be different in different areas of the bank. But, but to have a, a group that would have maybe four, five, six deployments a year was, was not uncommon. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so now we're having four, five, six production deployments a day. So Wow. Yes, that is insane. And so this, this is uh, dealing with people's money. I assume was it, is it yes, is a risk intensive thing? Yes, yes, for sure. Uh, and and uh, to be quite honest, uh, there was a lot of nervousness with a lot of the things that we have had to do along the way, because the organization is kind of conservative. And like I said. Uh, you know, this was so radical for them that, that, that I, I can remember, Josh, the very first time that we did a live deployment in the middle of the day with, with real customers already on the system. Everyone was like so nervous about it. And they're like, uh, everybody was waiting for something to happen. 
But after we had done that the 20th or the 30th or the 50th time, you know, they kind of now just accept that, that we can do this and that, that we're able to keep the quality very high and that. So, so it, it, it's been a great journey uh, through there and, and we still have a ways to go. That's awesome. Um, so now I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, continuous deployment and all that stuff because we've been doing it for years. Uh, and we used to talk a lot about ZDD, um, zero downtime deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was for us when we first started doing continuous deployment and industrial logic back in around 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, our first baby step towards true continuous deployment was getting to zero downtime deployments, which again, you could do that manually as long as there's no downtime. Mm-hmm. in between deployments is that is was that a first step for you or was it there a different step so i mean there there were a lot of steps so uh so we had to restructure the teams we had to change the approach for how we would could achieve quality we had to change our source code management practices we had to take uh their ci servers we had to do a lot of enhancements around you know the what what the pipeline is and actually push that to the teams, uh, so they already had a Pivotal Cloud Foundry infrastructure that 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 made it fairly easy for us to do zero downtime deployment. So so that was one of the nice pieces that was in place. But but they they were not leveraging that because for the, the organization at that time, a deployment was everybody wake up at two or three a.m. in the morning and and push code out, you know, in a in a kind of automated fashion, but but a, a very error prone process. And then have lots of QA people kind of go through and verify everything was okay. And so clearly that was not something we, we, we could do going forward. So there, there have been changes on, on many fronts. Uh, one of which, for example, was eliminating all of the QA folks that we had. We, don't, we have no testers. Uh, we have no scrum masters. We run a, a very, very, very lightweight Kanban approach mm-hmm. for how we're doing all of our work. And, uh, you know, you've just talked about like the old days when deployments happened, um, you know, mm-hmm. at odd hours and stuff like that. Um, was there a sense of great relief, you know, when, when it started to become more normal to, to deploy during the day and not have to be up at night? Yeah. So uh, it, it, not only from the, the, the technical folks, but from senior management across the way as well. So, I mean, for us, to be able to now deliver literally hundreds of times a month, you know, hundreds of, of times a month where maybe other areas of the bank where they're still only delivering, you know, uh, small, you know, maybe once or twice a month, uh, there, there definitely is recognition of what's happening. By the way, I don't want to leave the impression that this is happening all across this, this, this very large bank. This bank has, you know, maybe a hundred thousand employees or more. And we're talking about, about 22 teams right now in, in this area. So, so it's, it's a small, uh, small footprint, but, uh, but it has received a lot of recognition uh, just because of what we've been able to do. Yeah. Interesting, interestingly enough, uh, because of the, the virus, there have been a lot of emergency uh, new features that we've had to drive in, for example, mm-hmm. uh, things like, uh, so uh, the Canadian government has given money to individuals, you know, to help support that. And we had to add a feature that, that allowed those, those individuals to actually go in through the website and set up so that it's all handled direct deposit as opposed to having checks mailed out. Uh, and so on and so on. There have been, you know, dozens of little things like that that have come out 
that have been actually quite easy for us. We would get the requirements from the government and two days, three days later or so, it's in production. And I just heard uh, from, from an executive uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, that, that he has heard that, that all of the other Canadian banks are really, really struggling to, to keep up and to roll out these because these are sort of government mandated changes and many of them are missing the dates and the deadlines and Justin Trudeau is making the announcement and, and the bank doesn't have the infrastructure in place yet to support it. And so anyway, so yeah, you know, yeah. rapidly deliver value, you know, like that has, has come in very handy in these times. I mean, it sounds it to me, me, you know, you know people, people really, really need, uh, they really need cash right now. <laughs> So, you know, but this brings new light to the, uh, the lean expression, you know, concept of cash yes. from, from having the idea, uh, oh, the government regulation, we need to do something to literally putting cash in someone's hands, shortening the time to do that is so important given what's going on in the world right now. So yeah. the work you're doing is hugely impactful and important. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully it's a wake up call to, to others, whether it's within that bank or elsewhere, that uh, deployment needs to be a safe, um, frequently occurring activity mm-hmm. that, that is um, just considered normal. Yes, absolutely. It, it, it's amazing how uh, risky the traditional deployment is out there, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's frightening. Uh, most organizations, as you know, Josh, what, what, what we tend to have is we tend to have, you know, the production deployment be a one-off where it's done differently than it is everywhere else. So, and it's usually done by a different group. So there's also a handoff, you know, and I can't think of a riskier thing to do than to try to, you know, take our most important deployment, uh, make it different. So it's unique. It's a snowflake now. Right. And, and uh, have somebody who doesn't really understand the system do it. it. It's just insane. The amount of risk, by driving the risk out of the software from a quality perspective, by driving a risk out of these out of the environment by applying uh, DevOps practices in the teams, and by driving product risk uh, out as well by being able to rapidly try new things, uh, it's it's I can't. There's no other approach that is less risky for me than continuous deployment. Yeah, and it brings to mind that, um, like, let's say we're talking about a conservative bank, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. they consider themselves conservative, right? Yeah. If you talk to the bankers, the bankers mm-hmm. would say we're we're conservative or we're we manage risk. You know, my my whole uh, early professional career started um, at a bank on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we were in a risk management area, so um, that's all we did was manage risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I. I find that it's interesting that because bankers don't really understand technology, they don't actually understand that old outdated approaches to software development are highly risky, the opposite of conservative and don't match mm-hmm. with the fabric of the organization, which is to be conservative. Exactly. So it's like bringing this to their awareness is super important that, Hey, you've got a process here. That's super risky and doesn't fit the culture of this company, which is, let's be conservative. What, what I find is so often, especially companies that are in the financial uh, industries, they tend to be conservative financially, i.e. They, they look for the least expensive way to do something. 
And so, yes, that, that offshore QA group is much less uh, expensive than having people, you know, onshore do it, et cetera, or somebody who maybe is, is a tester is less expensive than a developer. So let's off work, offload work to them. But to be quite honest, the financial uh, cost is, is minuscule uh, when I look at the overall risk, you know, and, and by the way, the, the rate at which you're able to streamline, you know, the delivery of things whenever you don't have handoffs completely offsets that, that, uh, that, that financial uh, bump uh, significantly in my experience. So, anyway. so you're basically, uh, you are applying a lot of lean principles to the work you do. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very common to sort of in the in the agile coaching space to sort of subdivide people as, oh, that person's technical and oh, this person's process. And you know, I know that we at Industrial Logic don't don't even consider those boundaries whatsoever. We literally mm -hmm. think that a, a a talented agilist, talented lean practitioner can do both they can they can help with process they can help with uh the technology bring it all together ultimately ultimately to deliver from concept to cash um to you know get into delivering the right thing too we we big practitioners of lean startup you know and, and as you said uh the manager in the area is humble enough to say we want to be able to experiment in production we want to be able to find out you know what is relevant. So are, are there any, um, I, I want to get to, by the way, how you got rid of all your QA mm -hmm. uh, staff, talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that. But before that, are there any stories of, of experiments that you were able to put into production rapidly from which you gathered data and then helped to make good product decisions? Wow, there, there, there are so many right now that I, I don't even know uh, where, where to begin. It, it, at any time, we've probably got, you know, a few dozen experiments running. So, so it, it's, it's it's not only uh, you, what what you might think of as some of the experiments, but it's also uh, we're we're doing a lot of contrast uh, like A/B type uh, uh, reviews and things such as this. So so uh, the the interesting thing is that we also are dealing with very distinct uh, areas of the bank as well. So we've got kind of uh, four distinct product areas. Uh, we've got the area, which is the online banking. So it would be where if you and I had an account, for example, where we would go to look at our balances, to transfer money, to pay bills, to pay our credit card, whatever it might be. So the online banking side of things. There's also the the mortgage side that, we, that we've been working on built, delivering products with. Uh, there's the uh, software that runs inside of the branch offices where we've also been ideating there and iterating around that where we've been able to take processes that they had that would take you know anywhere up to 45 minutes to an hour and cut those down to you know five to seven minutes for example uh, and then finally there's there's also more of the business focused bans, uh, banking which is for small businesses so we're working across all of those different areas right now. So, so fantastic. So, okay, let's get to the topic of uh, mm -hmm. your QA staff. Um, sure. What can you say about that? What did what? How did it come to be that you were able to let them go? And then what what replaced it, if anything? You know, what what mm -hmm. what can you say about that? Well, so so over the years for me, what I what I found is I found that this is going to sound counterintuitive to most of our listeners, Josh, but. I found that adding a QA staff 
in an organization that wants to deliver very rapidly. I'm not talking about a traditional organization, but an organization that wants to deliver software every day or many times a day, adding QA into that, that, that mix actually drives quality lower. And, and the reason that, I, that I, I, I've experienced that, first of all, it requires a handoff, you know, uh, which, which in and of itself uh, is problematic and, and a lot of things get lost there. Uh, it might create competition or things like that. But secondarily, the, the, the folks who are in a QA role, they typically don't have the right tools to be able to test the software thoroughly. They, they typically test it from the outside, which has a couple of negative connotations, a couple of negative impacts. First of all, you have to wait till something's fairly close to finish before you can actually begin uh, testing it because you have to have that thing there to test. Secondly, testing from the outside means that, that it's virtually impossible to test all of the logic that exists, especially in larger complex apps that have many like layers. There's so much going on and testing it from the outside, you, you might be able to skim a happy path and maybe you know, a handful of negative cases, but guess what? There literally are hundreds and hundreds of negative cases in, you know, throughout all of the layers of that. And the only way to truly, truly test that thing is to test it from the inside. And so, so anyway, how did we get to there? Well, whenever we started building teams in this area, we basically said that, hey, we want our developers to be responsible for quality, or actually, it's not even that, it's, it's the whole team. Uh, which we can maybe get into team composition in just a moment. And there was a lot of nervousness about that. And we've had a couple of times where, uh, let's say, groups outside of our area came in and said, there's no way you guys can be delivering quality. You need to have more QA folks. You need to have testers. But as we've been able to continuously deliver, 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 with, with very high quality, those those voices have kind of over time fallen away. And does that um, include, uh, like, are you doing a lot of automated testing? Are you doing test-driven development or like mm -hmm. behavior-driven development or both? Can you say so, more? So, yeah. So uh, I, if I would talk about what our quality approach looks like, uh, unit tests, uh, TDD unit tests are the foundation for everything. I'm going to say probably well in excess of 90% of all of the tests are, are unit tests. Uh, the majority of the cases uh, written using a TDD style, but, but that's not kind of universal across all, all of the teams yet. Uh, so uh, above that, we do have a few of what we call uh, component tests. And this would be where I start up a component, but whatever it might talk to, it's all mocked. So for example, if I'm building an Angular app and that's, that's what I'm working on, I would maybe start up the Angular app, but it wouldn't talk to real services behind it. It would just talk to some mocks. And we have a few of those, not too many. Um, because we're calling out to other areas of the bank uh, where uh, maybe they're not following the same practices or have a lot of the same rigor, we've introduced contract tests that we're using uh, with some of our backend partners uh, just to ensure that uh, they can have insight into whenever they make a change that will break us. Uh, what we had before that, Josh, you've probably seen this before, is a backend team says, hey, we made a change. Show me your aggression test plan. How are you going to test to make sure our change doesn't break you? 
Yeah, and that's so, uh, yeah. That's not so if I great. introduce some contract tests, we put that to rest. You know, it's like right. here's a test. I want you to run this as part of your test suite. Uh, if the test doesn't break, don't contact me. If it breaks, <laughs> no. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. So we have that. We've Isn't it funny though, just for a minute here, that 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 such a basic concept of a contract test, it just doesn't seem to occur to so many groups, and that they yeah. they they continue to use a style of just, hey, you tell me when this, like you know, you want, it's it's it's, I find it fascinating because it, it's in some ways it mirrors a little bit of um, what Amazon noticed, which is that. Mm -hmm. And this is very counterintuitive is that they didn't want small teams having to talk to each other. So by getting into their microservices, mm -hmm. they, they could just work independently and harmoniously with other, with other groups, uh, provided mm -hmm. that, um, you know, their service was meeting the requirements or uh, it just, it, it's funny because a lot of times we talk about collaboration, we want more and more interpersonal collaboration, but in some sense, what you're saying here is, you kind of wanted a little bit less with a technology solution. Yes, yes. Well, well at least whenever we were interacting with, with uh, like I said, some of what we'll call the legacy teams for sure. So on the functional side, the last thing that we've layered in is what is exploratory testing. So I, I know you had Elizabeth Hendrickson as a guest uh, a few weeks back. Uh, we have circulated her books around quite a bit. Uh, all of our developers have, I've, I've put together some exploratory testing classes. They've all attended it. And so, in fact, that is the only case where we actually try to run things end-to-end. -end. We have no end-to-end -end automation because uh, they're, they're way too unreliable. And, and uh, so we, we actually treat our, our pipeline as production. And uh, so teams don't want to run end-to-end -end tests in their pipeline because they want no brittle tests or, or no... Uh, uncertainty. Wow. So what, what the, a lot of the teams will do is they'll push something out to production or out to an environment, uh, open up the feature toggles and test it there, you know, more in, in an exploratory testing approach uh, once they're confident. Then, then, uh, so, um, so that brings a question then to mind, a couple, yeah. a couple of questions. Uh, all right. One is, first of all, um, I just had Marit um, on the on the show um, mm -hmm. just before this this show. I'm not gonna try to pronounce her last name right now because I'll butcher it. But uh, Marit uh, Marit uh, does uh, mob testing, mm -hmm. and she's getting a lot of benefit out of that. They they produce uh, the company she works for produces uh, security software for like Windows machines, so it's very complicated, very developer centric stuff, and they mm -hmm. find that the mob mob testing is a very good way to get things going um just as an aside uh she's also written a book on exploratory uh, testing as well i i'm a huge fan of exploratory testing i think that you know i i've worked with teams where we taught them from the ground up how to do test driven development and um some level of, of acceptance testing as well and those teams were really hardcore really doing it well and still there were some defects and they were uncovered ultimately via exploratory testing. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a big, big fan of it. Um, but one question I have is, how many environments do you have? You know, so from the developer machine to getting into production, what's the typical, are there like, is there a QA environment? Is there like an, another environment and yet another? Like some, some companies have a lot of different environments. It's kind of scary. Yeah, we, we don't. So, uh, so this, this is our current state, which by the way, is not our end state. 
But where we are right now is uh, once, once you push your code to master, uh, it goes to, to an environment that they call user acceptance test or UAT. Uh, that's what it, where our pipeline delivers it. And that is the first time where you can go out and do some exploratory testing. Okay. Uh, our process that we have right now is what is in UAT today uh, automatically goes to production tomorrow. So, so we've got that one day's uh, of delay uh, kind of built in right now. And uh, so, uh, so when I say we're going to production every day, well, if I check code in and uh, merge that code today, or check that code in today, that code will be in production tomorrow. It will be in UAT today, but it will go into production tomorrow. And so, uh, so if you find a problem, sorry to interrupt, but if you find a problem, you could undo mm -hmm. it. You could uh, put put something safe back in place. Uh, you you have an opportunity, a window. Yeah, and and actually, we we don't find that many problems. Uh, and and by the way, it, it uh, we're using feature toggles quite extensively as well. So so even if there is a problem, we we let the the code goes anyway. You know, it's just turned off, so it's not an issue there. And less of it's code that maybe has has affected something that is on or something that's that's live. Then 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 there might be a you know, uh, something there. But yeah, as far as where we are at the bank, uh, that's how far we've evolved. That's just not our end goal. Our end goal is every commit goes straight out to production, but uh, baby steps. Where we are now is yeah. significantly further than we were just a few short months ago. So. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, when we, in 2010, when we started switching to continuous deployment for our e-learning software, um, we actually, we've never had a UAT environment. So, mm -hmm. you know, we test on our local machines and mm -hmm. if it's good there, then we go live. We do have a little fail-safe mechanism to switch back to a prior build. Um, and anyone could hit that switch if they needed to. Even a non-technical person was taught how to like go back, go into this Jenkins environment, press this thing, and then you're back on the older build uh, if, if that was ever needed. And I barely, barely ever was. I, do you find that when people start doing continuous delivery or continuous deployment that they start to maybe be a little more disciplined, a little more careful? Uh, without a doubt. Um, so all of the developers I'm working with now did, did not come from that background. So they always had that safety net and a lot of them had the mindset that, oh, I'll, I'll, there's somebody who's going to catch the, the defects for us later. And whenever I first started working with this group, whenever our, our deployments were, you know, every two weeks or so, they felt kind of okay with that. But as we started continuing to evolve and we got to a point where, you know, the very first iteration, it was kind of a four day pipeline. All of a sudden it's like, wow, when I, when I commit code, it's, it's on a path to automatically get out there. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, we've had a few production uh, defects that, that have made it out, you know? And, and so all of a sudden, absolutely people take it more serious. Developers become far more detailed oriented. You, you'd mentioned uh, your experience with the XP team and, and how the exploratory testing help them catch things. What I have found is, is once you teach developers uh, really good uh, structured exploratory testing, it changes the way that they write their tests, their automation as well. So, so I think those things kind of feed on each other to, 
really drive the quality high. And I can tell you right now, we are absolutely, absolutely delivering high quality software where defects that make it to production are very, very low. Um, we, we used to track escaped defects early on, mm-hmm. but we've stopped tracking it because it's, it's a non-issue now. Yeah, that's just uh, amazing, fantastic. And the people that you're working with, I'm sure, could never go back to the old way. No, no, they wouldn't do that. I mean, once you experience this style, it's, um, it's, it's just glorious. It brings, more, it, it brings more of the joy of uh, software development uh, mm-hmm. to, to one's career. And, and mm-hmm. that's, that's a, a very, very special thing. And I, I also imagine the, the managers in the area would be like, hey, no way am I going back to you know, mm-hmm. a few releases a year when I can release many times per day. I mean, it's, it's, it's just... It's the product people who are, are so ecstatic, you know, that, that, that you know, again, that they, I, one of the things that I did is I got them in the driver's seat of this because yeah. from my experience, you know, these sort of initiatives that are driven from a technical perspective uh, don't have the right level of whale, uh, wind in their sail, I think. Right. But, but you have the business people who are like, Yes, I I want to do this. I want to learn. I want to rapidly take that learning that we're having and roll it right back into the product as quickly as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and for example, our product people own all the feature toggles and own completely own release now. So developers have nothing to do with release. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so, and uh, mm-hmm. the way that we've helped them learn how to segment out their releases and, and incrementally uh, go out has, has also been, you know, it's part of the quality strategy as well. Yeah, yeah. Is there any um, the auditing or compliance uh, that, that you have to be concerned with? So, uh, so we, we've automated a lot of things through our pipeline that, that handles uh, so many of the concerns. For example, uh, we built some custom tools that go out. Uh, so we're, we're using some smart commits or we're putting certain tags inside of our, uh, uh, our Git commits. And we have a tool that goes out, uh, looks at the commits that have, have occurred, gets that, that JIRA story number, because yes, we are using JIRA, actually does a reverse lookup at the JIRA to get the user story title, pulls them together, creates a Git diff link, and generates uh, these automated release notes uh, each day of what is is going into production. Uh, and then those get sent out automatically on email and they also get posted to the team's Slack channels because we can map back to which teams uh, had, had brought about the changes. And so it, it shows uh, what user stories went in. Uh, there's a quick link there where you can look, click the link and it will show you the diffs. It tells you how many commits are made which mm-hmm. developers were involved in it and stuff. So, yeah. we built, so like I said, we built some automation along the way to mm. handle the, the, the majority of those. Uh, we, we've auto-approved releases now because there's this requirement that you have somebody approve it. That's mm-hmm. all automated. So it's, it's, pretty, it's no touch. Once, yeah. once, a devel- once your code is, is uh, merged into master, once your code is in master, it's no touch up to production. Now, I, the, uh, this, so this to me sounds a lot like um, what uh, Dave Farley calls a continuous compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's had experience doing that. He's been on the Modern Agile show as well. And he's had experience uh, with a very large scale trading environment, the biggest one in, in the UK. Um, you know, building in a continuous compliance 
uh, piece to their continuous deployment pipeline so that there's a continuous stream of, of data that compliance officers or auditors can look at to understand you know, what's happening to this, this system. I think it's, it's just so far beyond where things used to be. Um, and how slow they used to be where an auditor had to come in or a compliance person and look over static documentation files and this and that. Um, this, is, this is the future. Well, yeah, everything is completely traceable and auditable all the way from the pipelines up through the source code repositories and the tools. So, uh, so in, in many ways, uh, so my experience, not only at, at, at this particular client where I'm at right now, but, but the last few clients, or let's say the last five or six years worth of working in this, this fashion, uh, is that once you finally have a chance to sit down with auditors and explain to them the level of automation and explain to them uh, the no hands or the hands off approach and how traceable it really is it, in many ways. And many times they become like the biggest fan, you know, they, yeah. because the, the big risks from their perspective are, are removed from the system. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We've seen very similar experiences with, uh, you know, having them see our executable documentation for a system that we've, you know, mm -hmm. producing these executable specifications uh, that, you know, A, they document the system, B, they kind of help with a little bit of uh, acceptance testing. And, and they don't have to be like fragile. They can be a little under the covers, hitting them business model stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and C, they help, uh, they can help auditors uh, to confirm that, yes, we do have documentation. Yes, it is up to date because it actually runs against the system. And uh, while that wasn't being used back in the day when I was doing it um, in the continuous deployment pipeline, it was still far better than what these auditors had ever seen before in terms of, uh, you know, just what it did. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. So let's segue quickly here to... Um, some other work you're doing. I know you you teach online as well. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that. What are you doing there? So uh, I'm, I'm running what we call facilitated e-learning. And uh, what that is, is I'm meeting with teams once a week, or actually not even with the teams. Uh, I'm meeting with team leads once a week. And uh, we're, we're discussing the lessons that we're going to be doing. I often... Uh, kind of um, uh, have a little bit of a slide deck that I put together where I, I walked them through maybe a little bit different view. And then we talk about what they've completed over the past week. And I and, and so the, tech, the team leads are basically going back and working with their team over the course of the week to, to implement the exercises. And, I, and the, the whole goal here, first of all, is to keep them moving through it. And second of all, to help them learn how to apply it, the things that we're learning as we're learning it. So, for example, let's say if, if we had completed maybe some refactoring exercises and, uh, and uh, the, maybe the extract method uh, refactoring was one of the lessons that we had learned the previous week, I would talk to them about how, you know, whenever they're reviewing pull requests or whenever they're working with their team or whenever they're doing code reviews or whatever it is, how do we start to apply this in real time? And so the, the goal here is to take small little steps through e-learning, which we're doing two to three hours or so of e-learning a week, but to make sure that whatever it is that we're learning as quickly as possible, we start using it in our day-to-day -day work. And so 
Uh, I'm doing this with a couple of companies right now and, and it's going really well. Oh, that's, that's, that's really great. Um, I think, uh, you know, with the virus and stuff going on, um, mm -hmm. you know, people still need to upgrade their skills uh, in order to learn the ability to, to perform things like DevOps. So um, it's, it's more important than ever to, to gain these skills and stop, stop working in the old fashioned way. Mm -hmm. So um, that's terrific. Well, I'm glad to hear that's working well. Yeah. And I, I agree, giving people the chance to actually implement what they're learning um, and then come back and work with an instructor is, is super important because you can't just expect people to, you know, be given some e-learning and say, hey, go, go do it, go learn from it, see you later. Um, that doesn't tend to be a great successful approach. You've you got to interact with them. That's right. That's right. So, you know, having to meet with me once a week kind of puts a little bit of pressure on them, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, however you want to look at it to make sure that they actually do the exercises, but then also me having them talk about how have you applied it, give me some examples, you know, yes. and even coaching them along, you know, things that they can do, mm -hmm. how they do it, you know, how much to do, how little to do, yes. you know, is, is encouraging them to in the moment, as opposed to, you know, we all know people who've gone to workshops and then it's like six months after the workshop before they try to uh, actually apply what they're doing. So right. I'm trying to make that, that timeline, you know, a few hours or worst case, a few days. I think there's a lean concept here, right? It's, it's yeah. smaller batches, you know? Exactly. Uh, so exactly. awesome. Well, um, Jeezy, thank you so much for coming on the show, taking some time to share your uh, amazing stories and wisdom. Uh, I think it's uh, it's just been a fascinating uh, journey through what you're doing, and uh, I I look forward to hearing more about what happens there and how it potentially will, uh, you know, be spread to others who are inspired to to upgrade to this this form of of you know software development that's uh, ultimately I think serving people better. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, thank you, Josh. I've had a great time. Awesome. Well, if you enjoyed the show, please uh, watch, uh, watch the YouTube space, uh, share it with others. Um, you could uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We appreciate anything you can do for the show. Um, and thanks again for watching. Thank you.